How are we doing out there tonight? Amen. Well, bless the Lord. We are in 2 Corinthians. We're up to part 5. And uh, we're in chapter 3. I'm going to read verses 1 through 6. Remember, this book is a letter. It's an epistle written by the apostle. An epistle by the apostle. Say that 10 times now. <laughs> and uh, he's writing to the Corinthian church. That's a little wild. Say wild. You know, you got some kids in school, they're just kind of low-keyed, and they listen, they do what they're told, and then you got Corinthians. They're wild. And uh, Paul is laboring with them. He loves them. He's sowing into them. He's corrected them in uh, the first epistle. They have some immorality going on, and they've handled some things, and he's proud of them, but he continues to establish his apostolic authority because there are those who would like to usurp him and dismiss him and not listen to what God is pouring through him. We're going to get to that tonight, but you know, no matter how much you're called, how anointed you are, how right you are in doing what you're supposed to be doing, you're going to have opposition from people. And that's no indication that you're doing anything wrong. Sometimes it's an indication that you're doing everything right. You know, People opposition is one thing. Demonic opposition is another. But, you know, when you're doing the purposes of God in your life, you're going to face both. Second uh, Corinthians chapter 3, starting in verse 1, it says, Are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need as some letters of recommendation to you or from you? You are our letter written in our hearts known and read by all people, revealing yourselves that you are a letter of Christ. Hmm. Delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human heart. Such is the confidence we have towards God through Christ. Not that we are adequate in ourselves so as to consider anything having come from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God, who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. It's the short portion of Scripture, yet it's packed full of so much theology and revelation, and we're going to allow the Holy Spirit to illuminate that tonight. So Holy Spirit, uh, open up these verses to us and allow us to have good ground in our hearts and ears to hear uh, what you're saying to us, Lord, through this text that was written thousands of years ago, but is still so relevant to us today because the word is alive. We thank you in advance for what you're going to do. In Jesus' name, amen. So Paul continues to endeavor to sure up his spiritual and theological foundations, and he's trying to get the Corinthians on a solid foundation. How many know there's times in all of our Christian walk where we're a little shaky? You ever seen a newborn uh, horse all shaky-legged, the newborn fawn? You know, I love May because... Uh, you know, the fawns are born then, and you see them, the, the first ones we see during the year with the spots on them, we all scream in the car, ah, my wife gets all excited, and they're all like, you know, they're all wobbly-legged, and you're like, get off the road, you're going, come on, but you know, many times we're like that in our faith, and Paul as a mature saint, even though he 
had been converted not that long ago and it was going in one direction, headed in another. He has such a burden for the church and especially this one that he's writing to. Why? Because they're a little shaky and he tries to shore up their spiritual and theological foundations and he does that in two ways. One, by reminding them of the authenticity of his apostolic office. It's important that as they hear from Paul, they realize who Paul is. Not, you know, I'm Paul, I'm this, I'm that. It's just that he's called by God to be the apostle to the Gentiles. They don't know this, but he's going to write two-thirds of the New Testament. He is a conduit for the Holy Spirit to pour out the foundations of the New Testament church. And there are those there that wanted to shut him down, shut him up, and tell people, don't listen to him. So he shores up their theology by shoring up his authenticity in that they can rest assured that he's an apostle who hears from God. The second way he wants to shore up their foundation is this, by reminding them of the new covenant they were now under. These verses that I just read to you are impregnated with some suggestions about the new covenant. There's some comparisons in there. We're going we're gonna to dig through that. We're going to unpack it. But understand, they needed to know they were not under the old testament law anymore most of the new converts were jews and all they'd ever known was the mosaic law covenant it would be like you you knew how to breathe on land and then they put you underwater and say now breathe underwater because that was what the new covenant was to the jews didn't make any sense it was diametrically opposed it was at odds with the old legalistic approach now it's no more legalism but it's grace and it's no more rule keeping but it's a heart that's right with god so he reminds them they're under a new covenant now remember there were those there that wanted to shut down Paul, to take his place, to criticize him. They said, you got too much drama in your life, Paul. God couldn't possibly with you because everywhere you go, there's trouble, there's drama. There, you, you're getting beat, you're getting shipwrecked, you're getting you know, locked up in jail. How could God be with you? Yet God was with him, and these things were not an indication that God was against him. It's that there was spiritual resistance that he had to deal with, and all of us have to deal with. It may seem a little self-serving at times as we read the text here that Paul keeps on trying to establish himself, and he's, he's painstaking in the way he's trying to legitimize him to the Corinthians. But we need to understand, Paul is not being self-serving here. It's not that his ego is bruised. It's not that he wants to set these little, you know, these little nobodies straight. He's not doing that for that reason. You got to understand what would happen if those who sought to delegitimize him would have been successful. If they convinced everyone, don't listen to Paul, just imagine if this church, the Corinthian church, or all the other churches at that time, in that day, would have just stopped listening to Paul, rejected the message of Paul's gospel, which is the gospel. Imagine what would happen. There'd be bedlam, there'd be heresy, there'd be false teaching, and the wolves and the devils would move in and systematically destroy the church. So there was a lot hanging in the balance here. Paul's not just trying to assert himself. He's trying to preserve the, the gospel. He's trying to preserve the faith of the early church. And so it's a noble task. If you read it and you don't understand what's going on, sometimes you can think, it's like, why is Paul always trying to establish himself? Why is he tooting his own horn? Why is he constantly? It's because he's trying to protect the saints from the wolves. So verse 1, we had all that fun, and we didn't even get going yet, but 
says, are we beginning to commend ourselves again or do we need as some letters of condemnation to you or from you? So what he's trying to say here is basically, let me, let me break this down in a way we can understand it. He's being semi-rhetorical here in verse one and he's basically saying, do we need to have another discussion about my spiritual authority as an apostle or are we good at this point? Do I need to produce some letters of com- commendation? Do I need some letters from you guys? Do we need a vote? <laughs> See, pick up what's going on here in verse 1. He's, he's kind of being tongue-in-cheek here, but he's, he's basically trying to say, are we settled? Are we good? Do we need to have another discussion? Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need as some letters of condemnation to you or from you? So he's kind of just tongue-in-cheek there. He's communicating to them what a dubious position it puts him in when he has to commend himself to them. See, as a leader, the last thing you want to do is jump up and down and say, I'm the leader. If I have to, every time before I preach, go, I'm the pastor, I'm the pastor, I'm the pastor, (laughs) and people are like, ah, smile out there. You know, I mean, could you imagine if, like, every time, like, the, every time you get up to preach, you got to re... I mean, that's exhausting. That's a, that's a precarious position to be in the leader. You know, I've been told by mentors before, if you have to tell people you're the leader, you're not the leader. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Oh, by the way, I'm the leader. <laughs> so he, he's trying to just kind of make a point here and, and showing the awkward place that these people, these these, you know, kind of, I, I got to call them wolves in the church because, you know, they're attacking God's anointed. And um, they put him in an awkward place and he has to constantly uh, commend himself and, you know, establish himself and see who's with him. Uh, Paul had a genuinely, he had a generally humble view of himself. He wasn't, you know, he wasn't proud or pompous at all. This is a guy who persecuted the church and he never forgot where he came from. In fact, this humble view of himself is all throughout his writings. In 1 Corinthians 15, 9, he says, For I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Now, Paul's not being melodramatic here. He's not being, you know, fictitiously self-deprecating. He's not, you know, trying to seem small, but he really has an ego problem. This is genuine. He looks at the other apostles and he's like, wow, these guys walk with Jesus, talk with Jesus. John laid his head on his breast. Peter, you know, walked on the water. He's like, I'm the least of the apostles. Here's a guy with a humble opinion of himself, although he's going to turn out to be the greatest apostle that ever was. He sees himself as the least. Still, he's attacked. Those who are ministers called by God with spiritual gifts and God-ordained authority in the body of Christ need to balance a couple things here. They need to balance being something and being nothing all at the same time. If you're in leadership, if you have spiritual gifts, if you have an anointing, if God is using you to do great things, be careful because you've got to balance the fact that you are something because Christ in you, the hope of glory, and the anointing of God that rests on you is something. But at the same time, you're nothing. We're all nothing. Amen? Without the anointing, without, you know, without the call of God, without the giftings of God, we're nothing. Without him, we can do nothing. And without him, we are nothing. I'm never... 
I'll never forget the difference that Christ made in my life. Uh, you know, when I was young growing up, I got, you know, saved at 14 years old. And the difference between when I was lost and when I was found was totally different. No one noticed me before I had Jesus. I was quiet. I didn't make much noise. Pastor Mike shocked. Yeah, I just kind of, you know, I hadn't grown yet. I was still a little, little. But then I got Jesus in my heart. And then all of a sudden, everybody know me. Everybody heard, everybody heard from me. They saw I carried a Bible around in, in high school, and they used to call me names. <laughs> but you know what? I, I noticed right then the only thing that made a difference in my life being noticed in the eyes of men was Christ in me. We need to never forget that. Without him, we're nothing. Paul said, I'm the least. So you're a Christian. You're God's son. You're God's daughter. You're gifted. You're anointed. You're something, but at the same time, we're all nothing. So let's learn to balance that. Paul learned to balance that, and that's why he could say, you know, I'm the least. And people would look at him and think, you know, you're the least, and what am I? You know, he, he genuinely felt that way about himself. Now, the sheep need to respect uh, God-ordained authority, and under-shepherds at the same time need to not take themselves so seriously. Maybe you've come from religious backgrounds or churches where, you know, the, the clergy or the pastors or, the, or whoever, they were like royalty. And, you know, people carried their bags and parked their car and co-signed for them on things. And, you know, I, I've been around the block a little bit. And I've seen some of that, and it's, it's abusive. Because to be a leader, you need to be a servant. And you need to think of yourself, like Paul did, as the least of these. So that, sometimes that balancing doesn't happen, and people act like, you know, we're, we're royalty, we're celebrities, we're, we're to be put on pedestals. You don't approach us, you don't talk to us, you don't question us. Anybody ever been around that? You're quiet on me now, Pastor Mike. Yeah. It's not the way the body of Christ is supposed to be. You can knock on my door anytime. You can call me anytime. You can tell me my clothes don't match and I look funny. <laughs> Let's just be humble enough to be used by God so he gets the glory, amen? So the under-shepherds can't take themselves too seriously. The sheep, at the same time, need to respect authority. There's a delicate balance in the body of Christ that makes it work. So again, he asked them sort of tongue-in-cheek, you know, before you'll submit to my teaching, do I need letters of recommendation? Do we need to take a vote? Does anybody want to vouch for me here? Verse 2 reveals an interesting perspective. Paul sees the faithful within the churches that he planted, particularly the Corinthian church that he's writing to now, to be the proof of his authority. He's saying, how, how do I prove my authority? Well, you're the proof of my authority. The fruit that has been produced through this ministry that God's given me in you is my authority. He said, you are our letters. You're our commendation. You're written in our hearts, known and read by all people. Verse 3, revealing yourselves that you are a letter of Christ. So what Paul's saying is here, do you, do you want my commendation? Do you want to see my authenticity? Well, it's revealed in you. You're the fruit of my labors. 
what a great perspective he has here. Doesn't cite his accomplishments, doesn't cite his, you know, accolades, how smart he was, that he was trained under Gamaliel, one of the uh, premier theologians of the day. He was a Pharisee. He understood the scriptures. He understood the law and the prophets better than anyone standing there. No, he doesn't cite any of that. He says, do you, do you want, my, my commendation is you. It's the fruit of the ministry here. Now, you know, you might, you might think, well, these guys are a little rough, they're a little wild, and that's the proof that he's called of God. Yeah, they were the fruit. Why? Because God took these wild, crazy Corinthians and he turned them into born-again, spirit-filled believers. Amen. You know, we can't, sometimes people, you know, are a little rough, but you got to realize where they came from. You know, some of us, it might be a little rough, but do you realize where we started from? And all of us are miracles here. So the proof's in the pudding. No, the proof's in the fruit. And the fruit was the, the, the people who were getting saved in the churches that were being planted and the move of the Holy Spirit and the growth in the churches. That was the fruit. And, and listen, good fruit proves legitimate ministry. You can't have good fruit from illegitimate ministry. You can have fake fruit. Hello? But fake fruit doesn't fool people for long. I remember when I was a little boy, my Nana had a bowl of fake fruit on the counter. Every Italian got that bowl, right? And I, I remember as a little kid, you know, I don't think my parents remember this. I tried to take a, a, a bite. You two had two idiots we got here. I tried to take a bite at a Nana's wax apple. I was so disappointed, Gucci. I was like, I was ready for apple. And I got a mouthful of ugh. And my Nana, you know, if, if you guys know my Nana, she used to go here. Some of you remember her. Sweetest lady. She laughed at me. She laughed and laughed. Oh, that's fake. You can't eat that. See, fake fruit don't fool you for long. I only had to try one bite of the fake fruit. And then I just avoided the whole bowl. So... Legitimate ministry produces legitimate fruit, and it shows the authenticity of the anointing. The, the proof is in the fruit, and Paul said, you guys are the fruit of my ministry, so you're the proof of my apostolic authority. Now, catch the implications here, verse, verse 2. He says, you are our letter written in our hearts, known and read by all people. Wow. The church is not a building. It's not a college, it's not a degree or a diploma or a certificate or a board vote. The church is all about people who are living epistles. We're going to talk about this today. You and I are actually living epistles. What, what are the epistles we're looking at here? We're looking at the Pauline epistles. We're looking at the epistle, the letter written to the Corinthians. Yeah, the word suggests that you and I are living epistles. Wow. The story of our life, the story of God's faithfulness, the anointing on our life, the goodness of God seen in the journey of our lives is all a story to be read by everyone who knows us, everyone who looks at us. Amen. Thank God someone got excited. I was running out of steam. Thanks, Tony. I appreciate it. But you and I are that open book, that, that open letter. We're the, the second book of Acts here. So the implications of the fact that, you know, this is not legalism anymore, it's not rule-keeping, but we're living epistles. 
We are the only Jesus. We are the only church. We are the only gospel that some people are ever going to encounter. Some people are never going to come to church and hear about Jesus, but they're going to see Jesus in your life. Some people are never going to hear the gospel preached from a pulpit, but they're going to see the gospel lived in your life. So realize this concept of being a living epistle is a sobering thing that, you know, we're the only Jesus some people are ever going to see. Verse 2 drives home this idea that, you know, verse 3, I mean, drives home this idea that we're living epistles. Listen, revealing yourselves that you are a letter of Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone. Now, in here, I want you to pick up, there's, there's hints about covenants here, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of the human heart. Let's look at what he's saying there. When someone, you know, looks at us and we're supposed to be these living epistles and they're supposed to look at us and see Christ or see the gospel, you know, it forces us to ask some questions and take a hard look at our lives. If someone takes a hard look at our lives, will our lives point them to Christ? What am I all about? Balancing the things of being a human being to being fragile, to having struggles with sin, and at the same time being filled with the Holy Spirit, a child of God, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, an example to all men. What am I all about? If people look at me, does it point them to Jesus? Here's a thought. If you and I were accused of being Christians, would there be enough evidence to convict us of it? If we were in court and they said, this guy's accused of being a Christian, could they come up with enough evidence that would say, oh, yeah, he's a Christian? He goes to church. He reads the Bible. He talks about Jesus. Sobering. Makes you think a little bit, doesn't it? And it's good to be introspective, and it's good to take a look. And, you know, Paul said, examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. That's a good thing, self-introspection. And, you know, bringing our hearts before the Lord as David did. Search me, know me, try me, see if there be any wicked way in me. And these are good things, but it makes us think, is there enough in my life to suggest I'm a Christian? And there is enough in my life that when people look at me, it will point to the Lord. Paul saw himself as a delivery man in the kingdom of God. Yes, he was an apostle. Yes, he was a theologian. Yes, he was a a preacher of the word. But he says that you are a letter of Christ, listen, delivered by us. So that word delivered there, if you look at it in the original language, it literally means served. And Paul's like, I'm the delivery man. That's all I am. I deliver the oracles of God, the truth of God, the prophetic, the theological from God. I'm just a conduit that God flows through, and I deliver or serve the word. And I I looked at this as I was studying this week, and I was like, that's what my role in the church is, to be a delivery man. So every time I'm done delivering the word, I'm going to say, you've been served. (laughs) Now, I'm probably not ever going to say that again, but... You know, that's what Paul saw about himself. And the second part of verse 3 contains some beautiful descriptive language, and the imagery there is, is suggestive of covenants. He says, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God. Isn't that beautiful? 
There's implications about covenant in there. Not on tablets of stone. Well, the Ten Commandments were on tablets of stone, weren't they? Speaks of the Mosaic Law Covenant. But on tablets of the human heart, the flesh. It's no longer... Christ in the the holy of holies behind the veil, but now it's Christ in us, the hope of glory. And and he's making some implications here. Why? Because he's trying to strengthen their foundation. Why? Because he wants them to have sound theology so that they don't get swept away with the false. And this is his heart here. He's talking about this written not with ink and tablets of stone. These verses are actually contrasting the differences between the two covenants that they knew, the Mosaic Law Covenant in contrast with the new blood covenant of Jesus Christ. It's no more rule-keeping. It's no more legalism. It's no more tablets of stone. We've exchanged the ink of the law for the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Wow. Amen. We've we've given up on that old, cold, graceless tablets of stone. Not that we throw the commandments away, but the commandments don't save us. They only show us the knowledge of sin. Those Ten Commandments just show us we can't keep the law. We're sinners that need a Savior. And those commandments now point us to the cross where we can come and be redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And my wife and I were talking about this on the way here. You know, a lot of times as Christians, we, we identify ourselves with sinners because we still struggle with sin. And I've seen Christian post memes like, you know, don't hate somebody because they sin differently than you. And, and it's true. We shouldn't judge and we shouldn't hate and we shouldn't condemn the sinner. But the thing is that you and I struggle against sin, but we're not sinners. We're redeemed. We are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. There's a big difference between someone who's redeemed and covered by the blood and just learning to overcome sin than a person who's totally given to sin and not even resisting it. So there again, let's be humble. Let's identify with the sinner in that we all have struggles. But let's rejoice in the fact that we're redeemed by the blood, amen? Let's not discredit the blood of God and say, well, you know, I'm just a filthy, rotten, no good sinner. No, that's not what the blood of Jesus did to you. It cleansed you and redeemed you, and positionally, you're righteous. When God looks at you, he doesn't see the old man, the old nature. The blood covers you. He sees Jesus, and he says that you're redeemed. So powerful, powerful thoughts here. I love the imagery. Take the time to get into this verse, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but tablets of flesh, Mm, contrasting covenants so that they would be able to make the break from the old covenant to the new covenant without any residual limitations on their lives. This is a big hurdle for the early church. Verses 4 through 6 show where Paul's confidence was rooted. And it wasn't in his religious pedigree. Remember, we, we, we listed all of his accolades, accomplishments, achievements, you know, his spiritual accomplishments, even his moral superiority. He was a guy who was a, a, a Pharisee. Where They're such a legalistic sect, yet he said he kept the law perfectly when he was a Pharisee. Wow. That's serious. If, if that wasn't true, God wouldn't have let him say, say it and put it in the Bible. You know, so, you know, he's not just, you no know, tooting his own horn here, puffing himself up, and God's up in heaven going. It's true. He, he did. He, I mean, he was morally superior, yet he sees himself 
as the least of the apostles. He's a humble guy, and God's using him mightily. Uh, He's shown where his confidence is. Let's take a look at verse 4. Such is the confidence we have towards God through Christ. Verse 5, not that we are adequate in ourselves so as to consider anything having come from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. So let's take a look at verse 4 there. Paul's confidence was in God, and that's where our confidence should be. That, uh, you know, the fact that Jesus had brokered this relationship between us and God and had restored the division that sin brought between us and God. Uh, That's where Paul understood his connection was to the Lord. And that's where his confidence was. You know, it says we have toward God through Christ. And I want you to see that. We have confidence in God, but we have no connection or legitimate claim to God unless we have Jesus Christ. And that's why, you know, it's, it's connected to God through Christ. And those two thoughts and concepts go together because we can't reach God any other way. And there again, it goes back to us being redeemed. Why? Because if we were still in sin, we'd be separated from God. But the truth is, the minute we got born again, we were cleansed of our sin and positionally we were found righteous in the sight of God. So now we can have relationship with God. So we have it towards God through Christ. And remember how those two things work in hand. Confidence is a very important thing to have. How, ma- how many will admit that someone whose confidence is, is, is kind of attractive in some way? When you find someone who's good at what they do, you know, they're not haughty or arrogant, but yet they're, they're confident and it's contagious. You know, it's kind of like baseball. Hitting is contagious. If no one's hitting, the bats go dead, no one's hitting. But the minute they start hitting, boom, everybody's hitting. The the bat boy jumps in the box and he rips one down. Uh, You know why? Because it's contagious and confidence is contagious. And it's important to be confident. Why? Because if we're internally skeptical or, you know, unbelieving and, or we have doubts or a lack of passion, you know, so many Christians have a lack of passion for the gospel that it turns off the lost. You know, they, they see, uh, you know, we're, we're downcast, we're defeated, we're, we're vacillating back and forth. One day we're up, one day we're down, one day we're, you know, talking about Jesus, the next day we're talking like the world, and they pick up on that. And it's that inconsistency that, you know, causes them to question. So you and I need to be confident. We need to have, you know, not even a hint of lethargy, but we have to have passion for the gospel and a belief in the things we say and do. This world is never going to be moved by the church until the church is moved by the Holy Spirit to a place of confidence in the things of God. Amen. So grab a hold of some confidence. You serve a mighty, awesome God. Grab a hold of some confidence. Christ is in you, and he's the hope of glory. Amen. Verse 5 proves that the confidence, uh, you know, confidence is important, but having confidence in the wrong thing can be worse than having no confidence at all. 
Listen to verse 5 here. We're going we're to talk about this for a second. Not that we are adequate in and of ourselves so as to consider anything having coming from ourselves. So Paul's saying we don't have confidence in the wrong places. If, if, if I'm saying I'm Paul, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm Superman here, you know, I have confidence in myself, and let, let's hear what Paul has to say. No, confidence in the wrong things is worse than having no confidence at all. And I see people all the time that have confidence in the wrong things. I see lost people who have confidence in their good works or in the fact that they're not as bad as somebody else or they never killed anybody and, you know, surely God's going to let them into heaven. That's confidence in the wrong thing. And it's deception. And it'll lead to a Christless eternity. So we've got to have confidence, but in the right thing, not in ourselves. And that's basically what he's saying here in verse 5. It's, it's pretty clear, you know, not that we are adequate. Say adequate. adequate. We're going to look at that word. Not that we are adequate in ourselves so as to consider anything having come from ourselves. I saved people. I planted the church. I'm your spiritual father. That's not Paul's attitude. That's a wrong attitude. To God be the glory. Every soul saved, every conversion made is a work of the Holy Spirit. We're just laborers, some plant, some water, but God gives the increase. It's not my church, it's God's church. It's not my kingdom, it's God's kingdom. We've got to understand this stuff. You know, this is stuff that leaders have to grapple with to be effective, but also the, the body. Grab a hold of some humility, and you'll be amazed at what God could do with you. It says, not that we are adequate in ourselves, and we looked at that word adequate, so as to consider anything having come from ourselves. Okay, we get that. But our adequacy is from God. Now, the Greek word that's translated into the English, adequacy, uh-oh, here comes a drink, Tim. I wanted to warn him because he was writing. This Greek word for adequacy here is translated sufficiency in the King James, and it's the word hikanase, and it means competence and ability. I want you to think about that. Our spiritual competence comes from the Lord. It doesn't come from a degree. It doesn't come from, you know, spiritual achievements. It doesn't come from a diploma from Bible school. You know, you know what I learned in Bible school? I didn't learn so much about theology. I didn't learn how to preach. I'd been preaching since I'm 14. You know what I learned in Bible school? How to be stripped, how to be broken. And God did that not just in the classroom, but everywhere on that campus, stripping and breaking. Because you know what? The gifts and the callings of God are without repentance. They're in us. They're activated by the Holy Spirit. But our competency comes from God as he breaks us and strips us. Our ability comes from God as he strips us and humbles us, and we realize that it's got to be all him or it's not going to happen at all. Now, I wish I could say I've learned those lessons completely, but I, I would not be honest if, you know, it's a work in progress. That, you know, some days you wake up and you're full of you-know-what and vinegar and you think, I can do this myself. You know, watch this, God. And the whole trinity's going, oh, no. Get the angels. Leonardo's about to mess up. So 
That Greek word competency and ability, it's rooted in God, and that's where it comes from. Our confidence is not in ourselves. It does not come from within us. The sense of adequacy, ability that we have comes from our connection to God. You know the whole, without him we can do nothing, and with him all things are possible. You know that thing? That's what it's all about right there. We got to get that in our spirit. Without him I can do nothing. With him, all things are possible. Amen. It might look like I'm doing something. It might seem like I've built something, but it's not going to last. It's not going to stand. It's not going to stand the, the, the test of the, you know, the spiritual tide. No, unless it's built in Christ by the Holy Spirit, by the will of the Father, uh, it's not going to last. So without him, we can do nothing. With him, all things are possible. Verse 6 wraps up. Paul's point here with a few more gems of God's wisdom. He says in 6, who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant. See, you know, now he finally mentions covenants, you know, and we've, we've had kind of these types and shadows about covenants, these comparisons of, of covenant ideas. But now he mentions as servants. So who has made us adequate, there's that word again, hikanase, as servants of a new covenant, not the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. So our adequacy, our sufficiency comes by way of us being servants. How do we become sufficient? How do we become adequate? How do we become spiritually powerful? We humble ourselves and take the form of a servant as Jesus did. Without servanthood, there is no discipleship. Without servanthood, there is no increase of the anointing. You and I can't get around the fact that we are called to be servants. Well, I'm going to go to school. I'm going to get a degree. I'm going to be in charge. And you're going to scrub toilets, and you're going to rake leaves, and you're going to shovel snow, and you're going to move chairs. Come on now. And you're going to sit on the shelf with your gifts and wait, and you're going to trust the Lord, and you're going to be faithful when it's hard, and you're going to keep going when everybody says quit. And God is going to make you adequate by your willingness to go through all these things and jump through all these hoops and endure all the pressure until he can take the coal of our lives and turn it into diamonds. Servanthood. There's no way around it. Servanthood is something that all of us have to embrace. Our adequacy, our sufficiency comes from the power of the gospel Uh, It comes from the release of the new covenant that we preach. That's why we have got to be rooted in the gospel that Paul preached. He says in Romans 1, 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Look, I'm not ashamed of what? The gospel. Why? Because it's the power of God to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. 2 Timothy 1.8, therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. It's in service, humility, and brokenness that we do exploits for our God. Though we struggle with sin, we are redeemed. We're competent. We have ability. We have an anointing. We are made adequate through the Holy Spirit. And we can stop striving, stop trying to prove ourselves, 
Stop trying to establish ourselves and let the Holy Spirit just do the work. Let's bow our heads tonight. Father, just a few verses tonight, but Lord, they're so powerful. I pray that each one of us grab something here that was from your heart to us, that we take home something personal tonight. But God, help us to learn from this man who you took from a dark, dark place and you turned him from Saul into Paul and did amazing exploits with his life. Father, we want the Saul things in our lives turned into Paul. We don't want to be self-sufficient. We don't want to be arrogant. We don't want to be pushy, but Lord, we want to be humble servants so that we can be useful in your hands. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Give him praise tonight.